Amen. You may be seated. I have today many, many verses that I'd like to read as I speak, and so I won't have a focused verse for us to turn to as we begin, but I did want to say that uh, kind of what had prompted my thoughts in speaking about what I will cover today, we have, of course, not only in our country, but all over the world, if you've been introduced to the Bible, if you've been introduced to Jesus, we all face the question that Pilate faced, you know, what will we do with Jesus? What will we do with this, this information, with this truth? Certainly it is truth, but what will we do with this? And of course, the answers vary greatly. When we open the Word of the Lord to read it, to study it, to hopefully ingest and, and cement it within us, we're faced with this, this question. It is fundamental to faith and it's very simple, it might, might be uh, skipped over by some accidentally. It's this simple question is, is this really true? Is this, is this for real? There are scriptures in the Bible that really are challenging when we read them. Could that really have happened? And so the skeptic says there's no way for that to happen. It's beyond the scope of, of science. It's beyond the scope of the natural world. There's just simply no way to account for that. And even if I believe in God or in a God, and even if I believe in Jesus and, and that he was a good man and a prophet and even a miracle worker of sorts, I can't believe the whole way. And so today I'm going to speak about the most challenging scripture in the Bible. Would you bow your heads and let's ask for the blessing of the Lord one more time today. Our wonderful Savior, thank you for your uplifting and peaceful presence I feel today. I ask, Lord, that you would help me, that you would anoint my mind and my mouth, that I could speak a blessing to these people I could speak encouragement to these people and that we all, oh God, could be made more perfect in you. Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen, amen, amen. You know, perhaps it's not much of a secret at all and not, not, not surprising or shocking, if you know me, for me to say, I believe in the Bible. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It is unaltered. It is unadulterated. I have this, this simple guiding uh, idea and philosophy about the Bible. That is, God himself protects it. That certainly he can use people and he can use situations uh, uh, to guide it, but really it's his invisible hand 
that protects it through not just one year of trial and storm or a decade or a century, but through millennia. He has guided it and protected it and ensured that you and I today have his word. Now, on the surface, that seems like every Christian ought to believe that, right? It's simple enough. But, but if we really begin to dig up history behind Scripture, we'll start to learn things like, well, there were more books written than we have. How do we know which books that we keep and, and which ones we don't keep? And that's a worthwhile question, isn't it? And, of course, I'm not going to go into all of the history today, but it's a worthwhile question. How about this? The books that we do have, how do we know they haven't changed over time? I mean, we know they've changed in language if they were originally written in Chaldean, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. And, and then, of course, the Septuagint canonized and, and written all in Greek, which is the Bible Jesus quoted from. At, at, at any point, could he, there have been a failing, simple human error? I mean, hey, raise your hand if you ever made a mistake at work. Uh, Chuck, you put your hand up. <laughs> he went to do it and he said, ah. yeah, we all make mistakes because we're all human. And so, yes, even a scribe, could they not make a mistake? Could they not make a mistake I, I, just, just by in the natural flow of work? Certainly all these things could be possible, but that is why I have this feeling and this belief that God himself guides the process, that where there is a scribe, there isn't just one scribe, where there is an interpreter of scripture from one language to another, it's, just, it's not just one person doing it, it is teams of people doing it, teams of people pouring over it, painstakingly making sure we have gotten it right. There is a reason, church, that the King James version of scripture has endured for over three 300 years, 400 years, for over 400 years, it's because there was such a painstaking process that even today, even though we don't use the vernacular that they used back then, that version endures because they captured the word of God so well for the English-speaking people. And it is a wonder, and I'm not against all other uh, versions necessarily of scripture, but I certainly am against some of them because they take so much liberty to just say, ah, we don't need that. And we can just insert this. And uh, people understand it better that way. It's amazing how when they do that, uh, they've missed the whole point of some passages uh, of scripture. I heard a preacher once say that, you know, if he's looking at a different version of the Bible, first thing he does is go to Acts 2 and 38. And if they don't get that right, why bother with the rest of it? Because this is the plan of salvation. What must I do to be saved? Amen. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So here we are with these truths. Yeah, well, there's humans are used to, to, to write it down? Could they not make an error? Do we include this book? Do we include that book? Uh, uh, I believe God's hand guides it all. Nonetheless, there are challenging scriptures in the Bible. Challenging scriptures in the Bible. Challenge our faith, and there's a variety of kinds, and I'm not even going to uh, begin to cover them all. We're just going to scratch the surface on, on some of them. Some of them have to do with the natural world, and some of them have to do with theology, and some of them have to do with the future, and they challenge us in unique and different and special ways. 
If we were to turn to Revelation 21, we'll see this verse. That, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is heaven. And so this scripture, we believe in the sense of we want to go to heaven. We want to go to heaven. Amen? Can you say, I want to go to heaven? Amen? Amen. I mean, that's what we're kind of engaged in this whole Christian walk for is this reward of eternal life. I want to go to heaven. But, you know, uh, on scrutinizing it, we have to ask ourselves, can a city descend from the clouds? Is this not challenging to us? It's given rise to alternative uh, uh, opinions that, well, maybe it won't be an actual city. And if you believe in an actual city, hold on to it. That's, I've got no problem with it. But some people don't believe it's an actual city. They believe it's a metaphor for the, uh, just the, the body of Christ, that we're all coming down out of the clouds. And it's just uh, the language that John used. This city is us and uh, uh, us alone. But whether it's us or us alone uh, uh, or it's a city, you know, it's there. And it's maybe a challenging to understand how this is all going to happen. Will a city descend out of the clouds? For Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God, a city that has foundations, right? Is this this city? I won't belabor the point. I could preach a message on probably any of the scriptures I'll read to you today, but it's a challenging scripture for Christians to stand on and say, hey, I believe a city is going to fall out of the sky. And the rest of the world, all the skeptics say, chicken little, the sky is falling, apparently, over there at the Branch Community Church. Hey, you know, the Bible says we're a peculiar people. It's all right. We do believe strange things, but there's a reason we believe them. The reason we believe them is because we believe the Bible is the word of God, and his word cannot be denied. Every jot, every tittle, the dotting of an eye and the crossing of a T, not one bit will pass away his word will be confirmed and performed before time is no more. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, for this Melchizedek, a character that we see in Genesis, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Well, you're confusing me, preacher. Stay with me. Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor of end, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. This is a tough scripture. Very different than, than Revelation and, and the, the city of heaven. Very different. It's just a, a theological conundrum for people even today. There's this mystery on who is this guy Melchizedek? Was he a real man? Or was he what we call a theophany? In other words, God being represented in, in human form. God temporarily taking upon himself this human form, almost, as, almost similar to Jesus, but not begotten, right? For the man Jesus was born of woman. But Melchizedek, the Bible here says he did not have father, he did not have mother, he did, had no genealogy. Who was Melchizedek? And of course you can read about him in the book of Genesis. And his interactions with Abraham. This is a challenging scripture. So you believe, Christian, that people can just appear and then disappear? Well, I sure do. And that's challenging, I think, to a lot of skeptics. And I think it's challenging to a lot of people that want to base their religion in science. But hey, folks, your religion cannot just be based in what we observe in the natural world. Your religion needs to have with it faith. 
Hey, can someone just, instead of shouting amen to me, just shout faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If we can explain it away, and if we can measure it all, and if we can weigh it all, and we can tell all of it, what requirement would there be for a God? But he transcends us. He's above us. His ways are high above us, even as the heavens are high above the earth. Isn't it fascinating? I don't know if any of you... Uh, ever get the articles coming across uh, uh, either your electronic device or in the newspaper or magazine, how they always find this new planet that can support life? I mean, what a stupid thing to write. Am I allowed to use that word? Okay, thank you. I was going to even if you didn't give me permission. But how what a silly thing to write down. Oh, yeah, this, this planet can sustain life. It's millions of light years away. We've never been there, but it can support life. We know this because of science. That's so silly. That's called guessing. That's not even good guessing. That's just randomly saying, hey, there's two things we know about it, so, yeah, one day. Oh, come on. And you think that we're ridiculous because we think maybe Melchizedek is a theophany of God? I'm going to continue on. From Romans 8 and 38. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, I chose this first because of my father, who has many times testified not only to me and our family, but to the whole church. He's always had such a hard time believing that God could love him. There are then those people who struggle, are challenged with a verse that says, not height, not depth. Not anything created, not anything imagined. Not even if you've made up your mind that you're going to go to hell. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Amen. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That is challenging, isn't it? I mean, think about, think about uh, your neighbors. Think about your coworkers. Is there anything you can do to separate love there? Anything you can do to separate love from them or they can do to separate love from you? How about your kids and your, your spouse? Well, it's a little different, but boy, they can really get under your skin, can't they? They can really drive you crazy. And unfortunately, we do see families far too often pulled and driven apart. And where there was such unity and such pleasure and such love, now it all fails. But here God says, nothing, nothing will stop me from loving you. It's in my very nature, my very character. And this can be quite a challenge for some people. From Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
And I chose this scripture because it kind of captures this new birth experience in a unique way. We are here and we are believing that if we throw our hands in the air and we just repent and we say we're sorry and we're going to try to do better and then we get uh, a wet, we jump into the bathtub and, and, and we, in Jesus' name, all these miraculous things happen. Our sins are forgiven and they're washed away. Does that not make it easier to understand the skeptic who says, what are you talking about? All you did was get wet and talk to the sky. All you did was, was, was talk into the ether and you got wet. Well, you know, I think the skeptic would have more of a point if it were not for the infilling of the Holy Ghost and the evidence of speaking with other tongues, amen, as the Spirit of God gives the utterance, as it happened on the day of Pentecost, so still it happens today. But if you've never experienced it, certainly it's challenging to think that we're buried with him in baptism, that we're calling down his name and identifying in this way. It's a challenging scripture for the skeptic, don't you think? But for, for us who know that the word of God is true and it is true just as much today as it was yesterday and forever until he comes, it is true. If you want to get right with God, you repent and you get baptized and you walk in newness of life. And the only way to do that is through the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. 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 John 11, now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, Come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Ooh, ooh. Challenging scripture. You mean he, he, he called people back to life who were dead? Now, you don't really believe that, do you? You don't really believe he can bring the dead back to life because if there's anything that science has taught us medical science has taught us that once you did you did i mean you cannot reanimate dead tissue it just cannot be done and and to a great extent this is very true in medical science isn't it very true but you know i I'm, I, I'm not personal friends with him, but, but some of you may know the preacher Lee Stone King's world evangelist, world evangelist, whose heart stopped beating one day in an airport, and it didn't start beating again for 45 minutes. Now, you ask any doctor you want, and they'll tell you, no, he's dead. He's deader than dead. He's deader than 4 o'clock. He's dead as a doornail. He's dead. The brain cannot function unless it's getting oxygen to it. And the only way you can get oxygen to it is if that heart is beating and blood is going to it. But he will stand here today and tell you the whole story just like he did to the United Nations in New York. Have you met Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? And many days later, when he finally regained consciousness, the first thing he said to the nurse when he came to is, do you know Jesus? <laughs> Jesus transcends the medical science, doesn't he, folks? And yes, we are dead in our sins. And yes, we will die one day because it's appointed once to men to die. But there is coming another day where the dead in Christ shall rise and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Yeah. Woo! 
Hallelujah. But it's a challenging scripture, isn't it? It's a challenging scripture. Lazarus come forth and the dude just comes walking out of the grave. I mean, he's all wrapped up and mummified. I mean, they didn't do the Egyptian process and pulled everything out. That wasn't the tradition they had. Everything was just wrapped up. How did he even walk? I don't know, but if he can bring him back from the dead, I suppose he can help him walk. How did he even sit up wrapped like that? I don't know. But I do believe he came forth. John chapter 9. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the works of God should be, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, I think this is challenging for Christians. This is challenging for Christians because what it says is that God let a man be blind for decades just so he could heal him one day. And sometimes we as Christians get really uncomfortable with God's sovereignty. That while he's pouring out blessings on this person, he's pouring out blindness on us. He's pouring out affliction on us. Scripture says many are the afflictions of the righteous. And it feels it's unfair. Aren't you a fair God? Aren't you a just God? Yes, he is a just God. But he gets to decide, gets to decide what justice is. He gets to decide what fairness is. He is sovereign. And we've got to have an attitude that though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Challenging as it might be. Though he takes everything away from me, yet will I love him and serve him. John chapter 6. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. You know, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of sermons about that passage. That's probably a good reason why. Of course, we know oh, he's talking about communion or what others call the Eucharist. He's talking about yeah, partaking when he was later on in the upper room. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood. Eat, drink. People were so shocked when he, when he said this, though. Many of the people that had walked with him for years, the Bible says many of the disciples turned and left him challenging scripture he just told us to be cannibals that's literally what he said my flesh is food indeed my blood is drink indeed people were astonished shocked mortified they didn't know what to do with it it was at this time after many walked away, he turned and said to his disciples, Will you also at this time leave me? I love the words of Peter. <laughs> we got nowhere else to go. I mean, that's a good attitude for a Christian, right? 
challenging scriptures. Maybe I don't understand all of the Bible. (laughs) Most assuredly, I don't understand all of the Bible. I got nowhere better to be. I got no better faith than putting my faith in him. I got no, I got no better promise than eternal life with Jesus Christ. I got, I got no better place to be on Sunday morning than in the house of God with you folks. I got, I got nothing better than what he has for me. Oh, yeah, challenging scripture indeed for the Christian and for the skeptic. Jonah. Now, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Oh, yeah, skeptics love to use this. Are you telling me that Jonah gets swallowed by a whale, although, of course, some scriptures of the Bible say great fish, some say whale. Jonah, the, the prophet, this man gets swallowed up by a whale, By the way, Christian, whales don't eat people. They eat krill. They don't have teeth. And look how how our brains do, right? We're bringing all this logic to it. Bringing all this logic to it. I mean, I guess it's understandable, but, but folks, I mean, Yeah, you're going to tell me he survived? Okay, even if the whale swallowed him, he would have died. It's not like there's any oxygen down there. You know, I'm just crazy enough to believe that God could design a special fish just for Jonah. I'm just crazy enough to believe that. That whether it was a blue whale or a sperm whale or just God's special whale, that he took care of it. To me, that's not the most fascinating part of the scripture. To me, the fascinating part of Jonah's story is when he's puked up on the beach and he goes and tells Nineveh, because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't like the, the, the Assyrians. He doesn't like these people. And he just tells them, 40 days and you're all going to die. And it works. They all repent. They all cry out to God. The puke-smelling preacher, the crazy man, he told us we're all going to die. And it worked. And here we are today trying to be eloquent and, and trying to use all technology at our disposal and trying to do anything and everything we can to compel people to come and follow God. And apparently all we need to do is smell like puke and tell people they're going to die. That to me is the... Really challenging part of the scripture, but yeah, I believe he was swallowed. From Daniel, the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and he did eat grass and oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails looked like bird's claws. You telling me you really think King Nebuchadnezzar had a metamorphosis and became like a wild animal? had talons and feathers. Yeah, I do believe that. I can't explain one bit of it. I can't explain one bit of it. I don't even know why God cared so much about Nebuchadnezzar, but he did. I don't even know why the story is necessarily there other than to point out that God's really in control, but, it, but it's there. And I do believe it. From Judges and Samson took hold of the two middle pillars 
upon which the house stood, and on which it was borne up, of one with his right hand, the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. You're telling me you believe in a real Superman? I mean, I know Samson couldn't fly, but with physical feats, there was no parallel in Scripture. Bearing the gates of Hebron upon his shoulders and carrying them away, killing a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. And on and on the stories went. This, this mighty, mighty, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? Just the ordinary man, just this regular man doing all these amazing things. That's a challenging scripture, right? That he could have such strength. From Exodus, and Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides. On the one side and on the other were they written, and the, tab- t- the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. Christian, you're telling me you think that the finger of God came down on that mountain and etched in that stone those commandments given to Moses? You don't think it's possible? I mean, come on, Christian. Moses was alone. He could have done it himself. He delayed coming out of the mountain. Don't you think it's possible? Don't you think it's possible, Christian, that he just made it up? I said, I think God protects his word. Because Moses was so mad when he came down with those tables of stone, he cast them down and shattered them. He was so infuriated with the people. Even though he prayed for them and God pardoned them because of his prayer. He was still so upset with them. He shattered the word of God. But God, I think, protects his word. And so that's why he spoke to Moses. And he said, get your carcass back up on the mountain. We've got business to take care of. And where I wrote those words, you are now going to etch them in stone. You're going to take your hands and you're going to write them down and carve them into the rock. Yeah, I believe, even though that's challenging to believe that whether a lightning bolt, whether a cloud whether it just appeared, whether an actual hand came down, I believe it was God himself that wrote those first stones. But I don't really think this is the most challenging scripture in the Bible, and all that have come before it, they have their unique challenges, and so many more we could bring up. The most challenging scripture in the Bible is Genesis chapter 1. And verse number one. And I don't even think it's the whole verse that's the most challenging. I think it's just the first few words. In the beginning, God. Well, it just sounds like a normal opening, doesn't it? Right? I mean, Hemingway had his openings. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Poor guy can't make up his mind in the first sentence of the book. Here's something a little bit more definitive. In the beginning, God. 
And see, I think that you identify with this quite well, most likely. The skeptic that reads the story of Jonah, that reads the story of Samson, that reads about David and Goliath, that reads about an old prophet in Judea that gets nailed to a cross, they read about this city that comes down from heaven. They read all these stories, but they failed to understand the first few words. In the beginning, God. If you can believe that before you and I were here, that before anyone was here, that before this earth was here, there was a God. It's quite easy to believe that he can write his law on stone. It's quite easy to believe that he can uh, uh, give a man superhuman strength. It's quite easy to believe that he can create a, a, a fish for a, a prophet, a disobedient prophet, and, and, and swallow him and have him survive uh, for three days in the belly of the whale, even as a foreshadowing of what is going to happen when he comes. It's very easy, easy to believe that he can love you if he wants to love you. It's very easy to believe that he is sovereign and he can do with you whatever he likes or doesn't like. If you can just believe there's a God and he's got all power, he's got all control, he's got everything in his hands, it's much easier to believe that his act on Calvary is effectual. That being nailed to an old rugged cross, it really does mean something. That the blood shed for you, yes, it can wash away every sin. Most challenging scripture is just those few first words. If I can believe that, oh, everything else is easy. It's just like dominoes, you know. Just get the first one right, boom. Everything else is quite easy to believe. And right here is where the challenge comes with the skeptic and with the half-skeptic, if I can call them that. Those people you know who, who believe that, oh, yeah, sure, there's a God, but maybe, you know, I don't necessarily know his name. I'm going to take the lessons of the Bible. I'm going to apply them to myself. I don't really believe that Adam and Eve were the names of the first two people, but, uh, but there's a great lesson to be learned in them, and I'm going to apply it to my life. It's just an analogy or it's just a metaphor. It's just a, 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 a parallel. It's just a, a symbol of some kind. You're never going to capture everything you need to capture if you don't believe those first few words. The most important things will fail you. You can be immoral in your living, in your own eyes, but you won't be born again. You can legislate to do good and to do right, but, but folks, there's a reason Adam and Eve, you don't think they were the first people. The Bible gives us the genealogy. It doesn't skip generations. It goes from Adam to Seth. Because as you know, Abel and Cain were wiped out of that genealogy. It goes from Seth and counts the children and the grandchildren and it comes to Noah and then it comes to Abraham and then it comes to Moses and then it comes to David all the way down to Jesus Christ. God protects his word, I said, right? God protects his word, yeah? You know what genealogy we don't have? 
after Jesus. The Romans burnt it all, destroyed it all. But even today, we can count the genealogy, every family, every name from Jesus, not all the way back just to David, all the way back to Adam. In the beginning, God. All of it's so much easier to believe. It's so much easier to take in faith. So much easier to stand upon if you just get those first few words right. I'll believe it. I don't know about you, but I'll believe it. I don't know about your neighbor, but I believe it. I don't know about the guy down the street. I don't know about the church across the way. I don't know about anyone else, but I believe the word of God is protected. And I believe he's in control of it all. I believe one day he robed himself in flesh. He came and was born of woman. He lived like you and I, but he wasn't quite like you and I. Yes, he was 100% man, but the mystery was he was also 100% God. He chose, though he didn't have to, to drink from that bitter cup and to walk the road of Calvary. And after giving such a great thing to the world he didn't leave it alone at that he was raised three days later he came back to us as the Holy Ghost we get to carry him around with us I mean talk about a challenging scripture we believe that Jesus is on the inside working on the outside as the song says but it's so much easier to believe that if I start with this fact in the beginning God and the dominoes fall would you stand raise your hands towards heaven thank the Lord for his word thank the Lord that he's protected it thank the Lord that he's kept it for us as a lifeline as an instruction for our lives oh hallelujah Jesus, 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 Oh, thank you, God. 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 Glory, glory, glory. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Man, been so good to be here today. Before we close, I want to ask Brother Tyler if you would put on the overhead the service times for Brother Castle this Tuesday, 5 to 8, and Wednesday, 10 to noon, and where it's at so that people can write it down. He might take a minute because I forgot to prompt him before service. And all of those who would like to partake or participate rather in, in what we're doing for these children at Tupelo Children's Mansion. Please meet me right up here. You're dismissed in the wonderful name of the Lord.